You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Joining me from each their own remote locations, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello from Bunker B. This is a uh, coronavirus quarantine test run episode. We're just seeing what it's like to all record in different places. It is true that like when you see these like historical dramas and they have all the big moments of history, you know, like, oh, it's the moon landing. It's kind of fun. I would like to set it up more when people are going back and listening to this show like later, they can uh, identify moments in time like the coronavirus. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you know those uh, major historical moments when people were podcasting? <laughs> Uh, yes, people will be able to uh, listen back and remember when uh, they experienced peak podcast. Uh, who is on this podcast this week, though? This week I talked to Mara Vistendahl. She is a great reporter. She uh, reported from China for a long time, uh, is back living in the States now. She is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for her first book. She's written a lot of different kinds of magazine stories. And I was really interested to talk to her because I read her most recent book, which is called The Scientist and the Spy. And I was really entranced by it. It's about industrial espionage, agricultural espionage, and in particular, the uh, U.S. authorities' pursuit of a group of people who were essentially stealing corn from cornfields in Iowa. And it takes all kinds of twists and turns. Uh, it's a really fun book, but you also, you learn an incredible amount uh, reading about all sorts of things, which we, we got into. So it was great to talk to her. Our show this week and every week is brought to you by people like MailChimp, who make this show possible. Thank you so much to MailChimp. And now here's Evan with Mara Vistendahl. Mara, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's really nice to talk to you, and I've just devoured your book over a week's vacation, uh, which I really enjoyed. It's out now for a couple of weeks, and I feel like the book is both a narrative of the type that I really, really love, a crime-based narrative, but also kind of like unpacks all of these issues around racism and sort of racially tinged investigation and corporate espionage and all of these issues that I want to get into. But I wanted to start with, I feel like you were perfectly positioned to report this particular book. And I want to kind of like go all the way back and talk about how you ended up to be perfectly positioned for this particular book. So you reported from China for a long time, but you also had lived in China previous to your journalism career, as I understand it. Maybe just tell me what first took you to China is what I'm most interested in. So I had this kind of unusual childhood experience that was a little bit like an 80s sitcom in that um, <laughs> my, when my mother divorced my father, she moved in with her friend who was also a single mom and had a son around the same ages as me and my brother. And, and they, um, they were Chinese, the friend? So the friend is Chinese, or? yeah. I'm white. Um my mom's wife. Um, and the three of us kind of grew up together. And I heard 
Chinese then growing up, but it, I didn't really learn to speak it. It was just, it was nice to have that cultural exposure. And I experienced some events through the lens of the way my mom and Hongyu interacted, you know, like the crackdown on Tiananmen Square, for example, happened mm, when I was mm-hmm. nine. And I remember there were debates in the house over that. And and where so, were you? Where were you in the U.S.? Where did you grow up in the U.S.? In Minnesota. In Minnesota. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because there's something in the yeah. book also about your grandfather was a reporter and your father was a reporter. Also, yeah, they were. <laughs> my grandfather was the head of the journalism department at Iowa State University. Oh, wow. So, you know, agricultural reporting. And my, my dad was an ag reporter for a while. And my other grandfather was a missionary in Asia. Ah, uh, I, I feel like that's even more elements that come together in this particular book because there's a lot of agriculture in this book. And one of the questions I had was how much agriculture knowledge you had going into the reporting. Um, Very little. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had partied in cornfields. So <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> I'd grown up around corn, partied in cornfields, and you know, it was sort of the backdrop to my childhood. So was it that experience that led you to want to go study and learn the language and and live in China? Yes. Yeah. I started studying in high school and through college. And it's one of these projects where, as an English speaker, it just becomes a lifelong endeavor. Like, it's very hard to get fluent in Chinese. I, for me at least, I feel now I'm pretty proficient after living there for eight years, but I'm still learning (laughs) And now, now my kids are in Chinese immersion school. I'm kind of learning through them again. When did you sort of decide that you wanted to become a journalist? Uh, in college, I had moved to Mexico for a year. I'd, I also studied Spanish in college and had this grant to do like a social service project. And I moved to the border, lived with a family there on the Mexico side, And while I was there, I just started taking a lot of notes and realized I was much more interested in observing and writing down what was happening than I was in going out and affecting any change myself, which was initially somewhat sad realization (laughs) because you feel a little ineffectual at first. But later I came to love it. What were your first kind of experiences taking that note-taking and sort of turning it into reporting, I guess. The first story I did that anybody beyond my college campus read was during the Republican National Convention in 2004. I was interning at Harper's at the time. So after college, I moved to New York. I went to Columbia for J school. After I graduated, I decided I didn't want to get a real job, but I knew I wanted to write magazine pieces. You know, I also didn't have a trust fund, so I was like working nanny jobs and waitressing. And so I would intern at Harper's, just an unpaid internship, and then wait tables at night or on the weekends. And I loved it. I was like, (laughs) I just felt grateful to be there for that experience. I shouldn't say that now as an advocate for everybody getting paid, but this other intern I work with, Paul Keel, who's now at ProPublica, he was tasked with um, sourcing the statistic that the Republicans had booked all of these tables at Scores, the strip club, for the convention. And so I got the bright idea to go work as a waitress there ahead of the convention. And... I was so nerdy about it that I felt that I needed to work there the whole summer in order to like be a believable <laughs> be a believable fly on the wall when it happened. <laughs> so then I spent the rest of that summer um working at Harper's during the day and then, you know, for a few nights a week working as a cocktail waitress at scores. <laughs> so so the bill- used to not be a part of my biography. I'm only just telling you this. It's funny, I didn't find it on your website. Yeah. Um, but so the buildup to like the thing you were actually trying to report on, you must have been like, there's got to be, unless it was a good job to to say like, I really need to get the payoff during this week. Otherwise, I've worked this job the whole summer for nothing. Right. Well, as far as waitressing jobs go, it's pretty well paid. But you know, my main takeaway is that it's cold. 
they set the temperature for men in suits and everybody else is kind of freezing the whole time. So. And what did you get from the Republicans who came? Nobody extremely famous went in that week, but there were a lot of large donors who went. And I wrote this kind of daily blog that week for the Village Voice. And Gawker picked it up and it went semi-viral, whatever that meant, in 2004. And it was a fun little piece. I wrote it anonymously. I was like extremely worried that the scores management would find out <laughs> who I was, but I really don't think that they cared much about the Village Voice. Or, um, or Gawker, maybe, at that point. Yeah. Did you quit the job right afterwards? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's a very auspicious start. And then I moved to China. Start to your... <laughs> <laughs> so you moved now to... I do a lot more straighter magazine pieces. Yes, and... yes. Um, so you moved to China right after that, and... Was it a, did you have a sense of, I want to move there because there are a lot of stories that I can do from there. There's a, it's a fertile place to be able to report from, or was it more of a personal choice when you first decided to move there? After that blog published in the Village Voice, I remember talking with Laura Conaway, who's my editor there, and she suggested, you know, if you speak some Chinese, you might just consider moving to China and trying to freelance from there. And so I did. I didn't have a lot of work at first, but it was very fun to live there at that point. I was 24. It, the cost of living was then pretty low in Shanghai. It could be really low. And I spent the first few years improving my Chinese and hung out at the gym a lot. That was the way I talked with, like, this group of bodybuilders and, you know, whoever would talk to me. Harper's paid me a few hundred dollars a month to research leads for the reading section. And, you know, my rent was like $150 a month. So it worked out. And how did you sort of get a foothold into getting assignments, you know, from abroad? I just pitched any place where I knew somebody. I think back then, you could find pitching guides and media bistro. I ended up eventually, um, sort of by happenstance, writing science pieces. You know, I knew someone at Scientific American. Um, there was a magazine called Seed that was around at that time. I was oh, I writing for Seed. quite a bit. Yeah. And I was their China columnist. <laughs> and those stories were really fun. You know, I got to travel a lot. Once I was doing longer pieces, got to go on archaeological digs, went to the Tibetan plateau to write about this kind of gold rush for this strange fungus there. And it was just a beat that no one had really taken. There's maybe one or two other writers in China who were doing that. And so I fell into it and I really liked it. And somewhere along that path, you had a fossil named after you, and I wanted to yes. <laughs> ask you how that came about. Uh, I went with a paleobotanist to, I think it was in Inner Mongolia, so still in northern China, not Mongolia proper, and we were wandering around a coal mine. So it was an area that had been raised for mining, and the mining had exposed these layers of rock that they can then study. So... On that trip, he discovered some new species, like, don't ask me from what period, <laughs> but um, he named it after me, which was very nice. But you were there as a reporter? Yeah. I mean, you yes. were, you were yeah. along for... Yes, yeah. This was for science. Yeah. But then I was writing for science for the news section a lot. So tell me a little bit about, like, so what your life was like at that point. Is this before your first book? Yes. Uh -huh. And so yeah. did it feel like kind of like the glamorous life of the foreign correspondent at that point? No, it was more the scrappy freelancer. Yeah. <laughs> it was still really fun. And there were a number of us there, and I became very good friends with Adam Minter, who's another magazine writer who kind of got to start the same way in China. But there were also a number of foreign correspondents who were kind of on more posh, expat packages. Uh, and yeah. I didn't have that at that time. And maybe many of them did not speak the language, I would think. Yes and no. Mm. 
Yes, I know. You know, the New York Times used to have a kind of like our man in Asia type approach where they would rotate reporters out on two or three year cycles. And many papers did this, but that hasn't happened for a number of years. And actually in in China now, many of the reporters working for the papers are either Chinese born themselves or longtime speakers of Chinese. So there's been this switch towards much more local knowledge, which is good. I'm always just fascinated with as someone who at one point wanted to be a foreign correspondent, but never really kind of pulled the trigger. And I did a few stints in different places. The dynamic between people who are stationed overseas and speak the language and the parachute in people who show up and say, I'm going to get a translator and go around and do this story, which is me sometimes. I'm just always very interested in that dynamic and how, how, how did you feel about, did people show up and do stories that you felt like, yeah, I, I know that story. Like I've been pitching that story or I could have pitched that story. And was that annoying? <laughs> yes, it definitely happened. You know, we've probably had a kind of running snarky commentary on that sort of reporting. But at the same time, you know, the one thing you lose living somewhere for so long, and I realized this only after returning to the United States, is that you lose this high level of perspective on what is important to readers overseas. And, you know, ultimately, if you're writing for a U.S. magazine or a major publisher, you are writing for a Western audience. And so it's very useful to leave every once in a while to have that. And that's what the people parachuting in can bring. (laughs) The real sort of like this is what Americans think about this or know about this. Not or, just Americans, but just more global perspective. Just outside you know, of... The, yeah, they're, after living in China for a number of years, there were some stories that I, you know, it didn't even occur to me that they were stories anymore because I had read so much about them or they were just part of my daily life. And then I would read some piece that was like, just completely laid them out and think like, oh, I could have done that. But, you know, I, I hadn't thought to do it because I was so steeped in it. And how did you come across the, the idea for your first book? I worked a lot with a photographer named Ariana Lindquist, who is also from Minnesota, and she was living in China at that time, too. And we would often kind of just go off and do pieces and then find a publication for them later, which is not an approach I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> but we did that. We, you know, there was this growing sex ratio at birth imbalance in China, and the coverage I had read on it, I felt, didn't fully explain what was going on. There were far more boys being born than girls, and that sex ratio at birth was increasing every census. And the reason I didn't quite understand that was because, in many ways, the status of women in China was improving. You know, people were moving to cities, they were having fewer kids, they were becoming much more cosmopolitan in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to understand, you know, what is going on. And Ari knew a bunch of people living in this one county that had a particularly skewed sex ratio of birth. It was like 153 boys per 100 girls. Mm. The statistics aren't always extremely accurate, but Like, there was no doubt that people were giving birth to many more boys. And so we went there and spent a week or two doing that piece. And it ended up being published in the Virginia Quarterly Review. It's a great magazine. It is. And after that was published, some editors reached out to me to see if I wanted to make it into a book. And then I got an agent and kind of developed from there. When they reached out to you, did you immediately think, oh, yes, that's something I've been thinking about. I thought this could be a book. Yes. I I mean, so I didn't know at that time how to shape or write a book. But in the process of doing this piece on this small part of China, I had found that the sex ratio of birth in other countries was increasing. And, you know, there were even in countries like Albania, Armenia, Azerbaijan, this problem had spread beyond East Asia and India, where it was often kind of pinned on cultural causes to other parts of the world. And then I I got interested in what was going on in those different places. And I kind of, when I was just uh, reading a bunch of your work kind of together, 
One thing I noticed, I mean, you've more recently than that book, we'll get to your most current book, but you've written magazine pieces about the future of AI, AI like being friendly or unfriendly, eliminating humans. You've written about the Flat Earth Society. You've written about credit scores in China that can determine much about your daily life and future. It feels like there's a certain dystopian thread that runs through your work. And I wonder if that's a conscious thing. And obviously in the first book, the sex ratio, like there's a potentially dystopian scenario of this not being ever corrected and there being sort of like conflict. I'm curious how in the front of your mind, this sort of like vision of the future as potentially dystopian drives. Oh, very much. Yeah, for me, the, that book, An Unnatural Selection, is really about a new technology coming in, in this case, ultrasound and abortion and also IVF, prenatal genetic diagnosis, all these technologies that allow us to shape how we have children. Abortion is an old technology, but it, the way in which it's used is new. And it's about those technologies coming in and how people react to them and how they change our society. And it was often received as a book about gender discrimination, and I really was much more interested in the technology and how the technology amplifies existing biases in our society. What do you think drives that in your interests? Like, wh where do you think that comes from? Well, I can't say. Living in China at the moment when I did was really instructive because it was a society that was really being reshaped in many ways by technology and still is. You know, now the surveillance state is being rolled out in ways both slow and fast. And being there at that moment was maybe a little bit like being in the United States in the 1950s or 60s, where people are entranced with sci-fi and the possibility that new technologies and new devices can offer. And that captured my imagination. Well, let's talk a little bit about the sort of instigating event of the scientist and the spy. I know it's in the book, but at what point did you come across the event that kind of brought you into the world of the book? The, the man in the suit, I guess, is the sort of shorthand for it. So I left China for a few years, and then I moved back in uh, 2012 with my husband, and then I had that expat package. I was working for science and was then kind of like foreign correspondent dropped in. And at that point, then I was, my job was like full-time following researchers into the field and writing about scandals in research in China, of which there were many. And one day I read an article about this man named uh, Mo Hailong or Robert Mo who was found in a cornfield in Iowa. Uh, it was a Monsanto field that the company protected as trade secrets. Um, so the corn growing there was their next generation hybrid corn seed. They were going to create that seed so that they could sell it to farmers for the next year's planting. And his appearance in that field set off this two-year FBI investigation involving car chases and surveillance planes and airport busts. And I mean, it just completely captured my imagination since I'm from the Midwest, had this experience of partying in cornfields. <laughs> and I wrote an honestly very pun-filled article on that case. You know, it had like a CD in the headline. <laughs> <laughs> they really, Was that for they really like, yeah, they really yeah. like puns at science. Bless, bless their hearts. And and then I put it aside for a while, and then I kept seeing more and more of these cases: trade secrets theft and um, combating economic espionage from China has become one of the top counterintelligence priorities of the FBI. And so, you know, beginning with the Robert Mocus and a few before it, and then, you know, continuing to the present, there have been dozens, maybe hundreds of cases brought involving ethnic Chinese scientists and involving technologies from China. And so, you know, that kind of, in some ways, very silly case is part of this much larger phenomenon. And one of the things that's so striking in the book is how many of those cases including very prominent ones, 
actually don't amount to anything. At what point in the process did you discover that that was part of it, that that actually there was something going on that not all the cases were panning out? Well, I went into the topic pretty agnostic, but at the same time, somewhat skeptical of the U.S. government rhetoric um, because I think one really important thing that I gained from living in China is just this wholehearted skepticism of government messaging. You know, as a factor of it being an authoritarian state uh, with a state press, journalists can't rely on sourcing within the government. We, We always do try to call the ministries and do try to get comment, but most of your reporting, you have to go out into the field and you have to go talk to people. And, you know, so some of the lazier tropes of U.S. journalism just aren't possible because there aren't people in the government that are working on spinning the message all the time. Uh, I see. And so I took that skepticism with me into approaching this case involving indictments of Chinese scientists in the United States. And every time one of these cases were brought, there would be a big press conference, sometimes with very histrionic wording, you know, like there are foxes in the hen house and... <laughs> it is it is true that industrial espionage has become a priority for the Chinese government. The, you know, as there is sending technologically, there is this emphasis on acquiring and developing new technologies at all costs. But at the same time, it seemed to me that people were being caught up in this massive drive, similar to the way the U.S. reacted to terrorism after 9-11. So you have a legitimate threat, but then the national security state goes into overdrive and you know, maybe all of the reactions are not productive. One of the things that I really liked, a small detail in the book, was your attempt to track down where the numbers came from, like the number for the amount of value of intellectual property that was stolen from the U.S. every year or whatnot, and attempting to trace that back right. to where it came from. Right. Which was it was one of those numbers that just had no real source. Like people had been repeating it for years. And that's another thing. Like in China, if the government says that the population is one point three billion people, question that number. <laughs> like even the population figures are cooked to some degree. There you know, we know how to kind of adjust for them. But that even like the points on a map. You know, when you are like looking where to go on your GPS, they're off by 500 meters. So <laughs> it's not quite that extreme here, but people have motives to argue what they're arguing. And then those details get, as you say, repeated over and over, and then they, they just become a fact that is sourced to the previous account. And I feel like that was true in another way, too. Just with the main story, the man in the suit... Like mm-hmm. that a man in a suit was found in a Iowa cornfield fundamentally was not a correct detail. Right. So the book starts with this idea that a sheriff's deputy shows up and the call that goes out over dispatch is like Asian man in suit found in cornfield. And it turns out he's wearing chinos and a polo shirt which we know because there <laughs> was two years of discovery in this court case, and that was you know, probably one week of someone's life. It turns out he's not standing in the cornfield. It's actually his friend who's in the cornfield, and he's next to it. But that image kept re- reappearing throughout the case, and I just found it so captivating in part because it's like, well, it reminds me of North by Northwest, right? You have a man in a field who's being... You know, as planes are circling overhead, in the Robert Moe case, the FBI did actually bring out the surveillance planes at one point. And so you have this almost outsized reaction to a somewhat harebrained scheme. Robert and his colleagues uh, worked for a Beijing agricultural company. They definitely were plotting to take corn from Monsanto, and they probably did get some corn back to China. But, you know, they've 
they tried posing as U.S. farmers for a while. Like they bought a farm in Illinois and then tried going to seed stores and like, hey, we just we just moved into the area. We want to buy some seed. Um, they, at one point, they tried to send seed back to China in microwave popcorn bags. And <laughs> so it was this sort of... They were bumbling. They were, yes. they were somewhat bumbling yeah, in their approach. Yeah, they were somewhat bumbling. Yeah. 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 But that's one of the things that seemed like... I feel like the layers of the book are that it's a complex thing to deal with that they are trying to commit what is a crime in some ways. They're like in an organized way. They're over here trying to steal intellectual property, but they're also pretty bad at it. And then there's this question above that of whether or not it's even something that's actual intellectual property. Like it's never really established. Like there's all these sort of complexities. And how did you sort of sit down and map out how you were going to kind of examine those, I guess, from a writing perspective? Oh, so initially I thought that this case would just be one of several cases that I looked at in the mm. book. I was in love with this case from the beginning, but I didn't think that it could support a book. And I thought I would look at a number of different prosecutions, including several where the defendant turned out to be innocent and would write this kind of big idea book similar to my first book. And then the more I learned about this case, the more it just took over the project there were hundreds of court documents in the case. It didn't actually go to trial, but the discovery process yielded transcripts of what was being said in the car as Robert and his colleagues were driving across the Midwest. You know, I had transcripts of what the FBI said when they were arresting people. And I was also I also had just a ton of names where I was able to then go knock on those people's doors talk to them. And partway through the process, I learned that there was this American guy who'd been kind of caught in the middle of the whole operation, this guy named Kevin, who's a farmer in Illinois. And he just became this perfect character because he could explain all the different ways that American farmers are being affected by the seed industry and by consolidation. The other thing that was so interesting about this case is that Monsanto is a very unlikely victim company. And you know, Robert Moore was a hapless criminal at the same time. So I liked how complex the different characters were. Yeah, it's like, who's the good guy and who's yeah. the bad guy? It's He's not quite an anti-hero, Robert, but from a certain perspective, he's taking on a giant corporation that right. a lot of people have a lot of problems with as well. Right. And then he was really willing to talk with me. Um, at that point, he was in prison, but we messaged quite a lot and I met with him in prison and then he told me these great details, like the fact that he was a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and read all these detective stories. And he and Kevin were strangely similar in some ways, too. You know, both if middle-aged men with PhDs who, for various reasons, you know, their careers had foundered and then they'd ended up doing these. Kevin ended up consulting for the Chinese company and Robert ended up stealing corn. <laughs> um, were you doing mo were the reporting? Were you back in the U.S. at the point? I mean, this was over yes, years, yeah, well, right? Yeah, we moved back to the U.S. very suddenly. And so I was in Minnesota. And then that story, I, I kept like thinking of the seed case again and got back into it. And was the suddenly, I don't want to pry, but was the suddenly because you had to leave China for some reason? Yeah, during, so during my second... I had my first child in China, and then my second pregnancy had complications. And um, I started bleeding and was at risk of hemorrhaging. And I was actually covering the Hong Kong, the first Hong Kong protests when this happened. Oh, yeah. Just, um, you did it for uh, Matter. Yeah. yeah. We, we took, my husband and I took our 18-month-old daughter um, to Hong Kong and just had her in the baby carrier. And, like, Back then, when the protests first broke out, they seemed so peaceful and so it sounds silly now that things have gotten to the point of gas masks and waging virtual war between the protesters and, and the authorities in Hong Kong. But at that time, they were so peaceful. So we had gone with our daughter in the baby Bjorn <laughs> to Hong Kong and I started bleeding there. And later realized just I was pregnant, and there is no Rh negative blood in China. There's very little. Oh wow! So I had to leave extremely suddenly. It was quite strange. 
Yes, that's yeah. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, it was. It's. I have like an essay in the drawer about it somewhere. You know, I'd like to figure out what to do with it. It's because we ended up then having a, a very premature kid, but um, we ended up back in Minnesota, like living with my mom for a while, and. Then I was very close to uh, where the seed case played out. <laughs> yeah, so you thought, I'll just yeah. poke around on this a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Eventually, eventually. So this health thing like changed the course of my life for a while. And how, how did you get the... One of the things I really loved about it is you had people on all sides who seemed to cooperate with you, including on the police side of things, like really inside the mind of the people who were trying to track this down. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if that was something that you were able to glean from court files that were available, or if they also sat down with you in the same way that, you know, Robert from prison was willing to talk. I did sit down with all the various people involved. The FBI agent, Kevin, the American farmer who's caught in the middle. There were a few people working for the Chinese company who I was not able to interview. But then I had a lot of instant messages and so forth that they had exchanged with Robert. And he gave me his account of what he was thinking at each stage. And then the rest I was kind of able to piece together through messages of the, and text messages they had exchanged and so forth. But for the most part, the close narration is in these parts involving these three main characters, mm -hmm. um, Robert, Kevin, and the FBI agent, Mark Benton. And how did you sort of know, were you waiting for the conclusion of the trial? How did you know when you you had enough to sit down? Because it spans, I mean, you filed FOIA requests that I assume took, as they generally take, a quite long yeah. time to, to yeah. come to fruition. Right. So as this case involving Robert Moore was playing out, there were other cases coming out in the press where researchers have been arrested and then turned out to be innocent. I wrote about a few of those cases for science, and people then came to me and said, you know, actually my family members were surveilled or were investigated by the FBI a few decades ago. Uh, one woman came to me um, with documents that she had FOIA'd for a family friend who was a scientist in the 70s, have mysteriously lost his job. Uh, he's a Chinese-American um, U.S. citizen working for a defense contractor. And then he had made a trip back to visit his mom, who was sick in China. And then when he returned, lost his job, uh, was not able to get another job. And the FBI was, meanwhile, kind of tailing him as he drove around Michigan. And when she gave me that file, there was this code in it and a name of a program called Chinese Communist Contacts with Scientists in the United States. Mm. So I FOIA'd that and then almost forgot about it. And then two years later, got this batch of documents that showed that there had been a dedicated program to surveil Chinese American scientists. It was in the Hoover years. So, you know, not much that happened under J. Edgar Hoover is that shocking. Now, you know, many people had suspected the existence of something like this, and it gets helpful to have answers. And it also does raise questions about whether this pattern of discrimination has continued. In the case of Robert Moe, his ethnicity became so fraught that the judge actually banned mention of it at trial. The lawyers were not allowed to talk about his Chineseness. Or say where the company he was working for was from or anything? It, they were allowed to talk about it if it was relevant. Um, but, I mean, I actually think that was a good decision. I mean, at that time, it had already become very fraught. You know, some of the coverage of these cases um, used very loaded language, metaphors that kind of compare Chinese scientists to animals and so forth. And this has only gotten much worse in the past two years under Trump. I mean, Trump has been on record saying all Chinese students are spies. He has an advisor who wrote a book called Death by China. So mm -hmm. seems like we're headed on a collision course. I mean, at the same time, Xi Jinping is a narcissist and a, in some ways the mirror image of Trump. <laughs> so, Yeah. And do you, 
because you've been back and forth living in China, living here, you also speak the language, know the culture. When you look at how in the everyday news media China is portrayed, what is your reaction? I mean, obviously, like coronavirus is something right now that mm -hmm. is coming up against people's perceptions of China. So what do you see when you look at the way it's approached? I think we're at kind of a turning point now because even within the community of journalists and policy people and so forth that I worked with in China, there's this big divide over whether to decouple from China. So whether the United States and China should continue to be intertwined. I mean, to some degree, the coronavirus may drive that decoupling. Um, but there are people who feel that the direction that things are headed in China um, with the you know over one million people who are interned in Xinjiang, for example, the encroach of the surveillance state and just the general tightening of authority under Xi Jinping, that given all that, the United States should start to disentangle its supply chains from China. On the other hand, there are people who feel like they we're so intertwined that that is going to be impossible. And I'm left with a feeling that this must have been a small taste of what it was like to live through the Cold War, where you have two governments making these kind of histrionic claims. Actually, in the process of reporting my book, I'm reporting a piece uh, for The Intercept that was kind of spun out of the book. I worked very closely with this Cold War historian named Zoyo Wang, and he, he said something really interesting to me the other day, which is that in times of tension, Cold War historians believe that there's this mirroring that goes on, that we start to behave like the enemy mm. and that that is the big risk. And I feel like that's the moment we're in now. Has it made it difficult for you to report there? You know, many, many journalists, not just me included, were questioning whether it makes sense to go back now. It's very sad. <laughs> I mean, China just kicked out three very talented U.S. journalists. Yeah, the Wall Street We're working journals. for the Wall Street Journal, yeah. two of them I know pretty well. And you have two Canadians in detention somewhat arbitrarily in retaliation for the Huawei CFO being detained in Canada. And so it's just a very fraught time. And someone in the Trump administration floated the idea of kicking out hundreds of Chinese right. journalists from mm -hmm. from the mm -hmm. U.S., which seems like mm -hmm. that would be the, the spiral. Yeah. I realized after I left China that I always felt a little on edge there. It was a very stressful place to be a journalist. And things like the FOIA process and the public library. <laughs> I love my county library. I mean, they, they feel like, the, like joy, big joys in my life. Like I'm so happy that they exist and that I can call up a local police department and they'll answer my call. Yeah. And I can get a police report if I want to. Yeah. I... I <laughs> When I feel patriotic, it's about those things, about the existence of the freedom of speech. But there is quite a lot that can be done now, you know, now that there is a national security review of TikTok and so forth. There are just a lot of stories involving China and the United States. But I'm also interested in other stories. And, you know, one of the realities of doing those sorts of stories is that they are extremely time-consuming and stressful in a way that, you know, I mean, most investigative features are time consuming and stressful. But if you're reading documents in another language, then if you have a magazine that fact checks carefully, the fact checking process takes twice as long. Chinese companies are very litigious and very uh, quick to follow up <laughs> on points. And so, you know, those stories are extremely stressful. So, you know, something like going to the Flat Earth Convention, <laughs> that was that was depressing in a different way, but it it was it was a fun break from from those sorts of pieces. Yeah, that yeah. was popular science, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a, mm -hmm. that was a great piece. I also wanted to ask you about uh, this one's not as lighthearted, um, but the Wired piece that you did about the murder uh, mm -hmm. 
which was in Minnesota. Right. Right. And I was wondering how you came to do that piece. I feel like I saw something about the documents being dumped online for the the hitman. So it was basically, well, you could tell it better than me, the, the sort of like thumbnail of the incident that was behind that. So that's a case of a a Minnesota guy who tried to kill his wife by hiring hitman. And it turns out that the hitman site that he finds on the dark web is a hoax. It's actually not that easy to hire a hitman. And then he tries again and he keeps trying. And at the time I started reporting that piece, there were already multiple, you know, like 48 hours had done a whole two-part episode on it and other places had done pieces and I think the real innovation if you can even call it that of my piece was just to take the story chronologically and look at it as a study of this man I mean the first thing that I thought about when a friend told me about this case was it's like a real life Fargo Mm -hmm. right you have a man who the entire story is that he's trying to kill his wife and he can't. You know, he's this kind of like evangelical deacon in a, in his church, looks upstanding, ex-urban guy who has solar panels on his roof and, you know, Minnesota accent. And everybody looks at him and thinks, oh, nothing's wrong in that house. And so, you know, it just was straight out of Fargo. And another other places has structured it more like a murder mystery because you had this correspondence with this shadowy dark web figure. Mm-hmm. and But there really was no mystery to it. And so I think it was in talking with my editor, Vera Titanek, that we came up with the very basic idea to just do it chronologically. And, I mean, it sounds dumb because it's the, it's the most obvious approach, but um, I think sometimes people forget that. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to overcomplicate it. Right, I, As right. a person who often overcomplicates it, I feel that way all the time. Yeah. Fear is fantastic. I now, make, I now make timelines for everything and, you know, try to stick to the rule that, like, do you follow the chronology whenever possible because, you know, I realized, I think early in my career when I wrote magazine articles, I would often, I had this idea that you had to start with a bang, like with this big scene and then go back and then, you know, whereas some of the pieces that I love the most, they really start at the beginning, of, at the inception of the story in a way that like allows you to understand the character in it. I wanted to ask you about the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a fruitful uh, thing to discuss, but as a, as a person who has occasionally been a runner-up for a thing, um, how does it feel to be the runner-up for the Pulitzer? Is it like... Now I can attach a Pulitzer Prize nominated to my bio for the rest of my life? Or is it like, fuck, I was so close to winning a Pulitzer. (laughs) You know, the funny thing is when it was announced that this is my first book that was a finalist. Yeah, the the first book. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, When that was announced, nobody notified me. Really? No. So I just... I was in the Netherlands at that time um, where my husband is from. We were living there. And I just woke up one morning and went on Twitter. And, like, I, you know, I had, like, a thousand Twitter followers. <laughs> and my Twitter feed had just exploded. And I, and that's how I found out. Oh, they don't give you and, any and heads up a, on that? No. I have a friend who was a finalist. And he got a, he got a letter, which he has framed on the wall. And I'm, I'm still thinking maybe, maybe if I'd been in the U.S., like, maybe there's a letter waiting at some address for me somewhere. Some some storage unit (laughs) But then I remember I did contact, I did contact my publisher and they were like, great, good job. And I was like, well, what are we going to do now? (laughs) Like, um, you really have to win it to see, you know, a big boost in sales. Oh, that's what they said? Very nicely. Yeah. Very, very graciously. (laughs) I I think I ask about it partly because I feel like people at all levels of their careers are always sort of like looking up and and seeing a thing and kind of being like, oh, if I had that, mm-hmm. everything would be, you know, everything would be great. Mm-hmm. Like if I was a Pulitzer finalist, then when I went to sell my next book, they would, of course, line up to buy it because it would have Pulitzer finalists already 
already on there. So I'm always interested in the experience of something like that happening and whether you feel still in that in-between place, if you know what I mean. That's been a total cakewalk since then. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. No, I'm, I'm married to another creative professional and you know we've, we've got kids and um, <laughs> he joked for a while that I had sophomore album syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's another part of it too. Yeah. No, that just felt like a, a great honor because I was really starting out and had no idea that I even knew how to write a book at that point. You know, I feel like I really like I learned as I was doing it. Um, I At the time that book was published, I hadn't done any substantive magazine features ex- except for the Virginia Quarterly Review piece where they, that were really character-driven and tightly edited and so forth. And so it was a big surprise. And have the characters in your book read the book at this point? Definitely Kevin has. And Robert is still in detention. He served his term. He's now in um, immigration uh, detention facility in Georgia. And his wife is going to give him a copy. Well, the book is wonderful. Thank you very much for coming, and I hope the rest of the book launch goes fabulously. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me on the show. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to Mara. Vista Nall for coming into the studio today. Her book is called The Scientist and the Spy. Uh, It's fantastic. It's a really good read. You should go check it out. Thanks to our editor, as always, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Maria Clementi, and as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.